0: Um, we'll be skipping two classes. I'll be out of town for one. And then the following Tuesday is um, March 7th. So we'll be having a Mahasamadhi event here instead. So after tonight, two weeks holiday. So we are on number 220. Once I and a few friends uh, went, about, uh, went about and raised money for a great feast we planned to give to the poor. Many contributed to the cause Later, crowds of the poor were fed. That whole day, I cooked, served, and was active constantly. At the day's end, my body was exhausted. The thought came to me, surely this is one time God won't mind if I don't meditate. At that moment, I heard Satan's voice speaking in tones of honeyed sympathy. Poor boy, he has worked so very hard. Let him rest. Surely he deserves a good sleep. I leapt up in outrage from my bed, sat firmly in meditation posture and did a few kriyas. All of a sudden I became filled with energy. For the rest of that night I remained wide awake in ecstasy. (laughs) Oh dear. Um, I I saw me when he was teaching us about counseling in one context or another, about helping people. He, he said something which was actually very interesting. He said, you should be uh, sympathetic with people, but not too sympathetic. And It was just really interesting. He said, if you give people too much sympathy, it simply increases the idea in their minds that their problems are really enormous. And it's actually, it's, it's very interesting because people have different ways of counseling. And, and many people go quite far in terms of sympathy and others remain more impersonal. And it, just, it was just always an interesting thing to keep in mind, because you would think that you, know, you should just be nothing but supportive of people's sufferings, but there's a certain point, and it, he talks about this further on and a few others later, but just, as Master said, you have to be tough on yourself. That, it, that's a very dicey proposition, though, and in another context, Swami said to us, it's presumptuous not to take yourself into account and your own spiritual well-being. So you may think, well, I shouldn't be too compassionate, but if it hurts you to be hard-hearted, then you have to consider first, it's presumptuous to assume that you have nothing to learn. And so therefore, if that action too conveniently serves your own desire um, not not to be engaged, or your own coldness toward people, or lack of sympathy, then it's far better to just forget that admonition and um, to go, it's, that's a very sensitive line. One of the ways in which Swami has been so effective in training leaders is, is just always giving us the nuances of it. Like it isn't just how you're supposed to behave, it's also what you personally need. Because sometimes you may just be working, a person may just be working on being more sympathetic, being more compassionate, being more patient. And it's almost less important how it affects them. It's it's not dharma if you don't follow what's also right for you. If you break your own dharma in the name of helping someone else, nothing good will come of it. It'll never work. So, because that's where there is dharma, there is victory. So it's it's something to keep in mind. Once as a, number two twenty one, once as a boy during meditation, I entered a state of ecstasy. My breathing and heartbeat were stilled. Then I decided to play a little prank. And the Master says that, well, after all, I was only a boy. (laughs) It's just like there he was. When people came in, they saw me lying there, apparently lifeless. What a commotion. What wails. What lamentations. All the family stood around saying how highly they thought of me. Isn't this crazy? He just plays dead just as a child. And then an old faithful servant of the family, whom we used to call Maid Ma, cried loudly. Ah, ah, now I won't have anyone to fight with anymore. That was too much for me. I couldn't contain myself any longer. Oh, yes, you will, I cried. (laughs) You, she shouted angrily. I knew you were only fooling. She picked up a broom and flung it at me. (laughs) Oh, well. Was it naughty of me? Well, I must say, it was great fun. I, Swami Kriyananda Walter, have since thought of a piece of advice the woman saint Ananda Moima once gave to a visitor. Tell your child to be good, but not too good. The image of solemnly pious child saints is a bit cloying, surely. After all, it takes great energy to find God. The popular description of the master of Galilee as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, could not possibly be applied to anyone of true spiritual fervor. Certainly, from the legends one reads about the child Jesus, the first words that spring to mind to describe him are neither gentle nor mild. The word one thinks of is powerful. That's very important. And when, when, we, uh, when we in our Ananda community first started having children, as a, you know, when kids when we reached the stage of life where children were being born it was actually it was as a subject of a lot of discussion as to what would a spiritually minded child actually look like would would it be the pious little saint child saints or would it be the spirited naughty boys and girls who were always trying to find a way to do something independent and break the rules i mean it, it and it was not clear ever what was really there's been no uh, formula for it And I I think I might have mentioned in this class earlier, I remember there was, in the Seattle community at a time, there was a a crowd of little boys uh, who were quite spirited. And uh, Swami gave a satsang for the children. And at the end of it, he just said to them, be good, but not too good. (laughs) Don't be afraid, in other words. Don't let everybody else tell you how you're supposed to behave. Don't think that you just have to always never make waves. You know, follow your own spirit and do what you know you are supposed to do. It's not always such a, such nice news, but there it is. <laughs> uh, I remember also I, I wrote a note here. Um, I put this in my book. The man who actually was the first person to start our Seattle center was a man who didn't. He, his name was Jeff Green, and he he actually brought together a group in master's name there and then invited, as it was, me up there um, to give a program. That would have been in the early 80s. And he uh, had really quite a good group together, like 30-some people, and it was very dynamic. And, and quite a few people who eventually joined Ananda were part of it. It was it was a good group. But he was very independent-minded. He was a Vietnam War veteran, and he had a lot of forces playing with him. And uh, uh, he eventually incorporated as the Ananda Center of Seattle with himself as spiritual director for life. And it was sort of the beginning of Ananda's expansion in any direction. And there was a certain amount of agitation over this action on his part. (laughs) And uh, different theories as to how we ought to handle it. And eventually Swamiji just invited him to come to Ananda village to meet with him. And they did. I was there because I was sort of the liaison. I mean, I said to Swami, I, you know, it's a really good group. There's a lot going on there. I don't, you know, I, I didn't really quite know how to handle it. And Swami thought he should handle it himself. So they had lunch together and talked about a lot of different things. Jeff was a very, he's an astrologer. He was a very dynamic man. And uh, at the end of it, just Swami just said sort of casually, you know, actually, I'm spiritual director for life of Ananda. So perhaps if you want to uh, have your own group and have that be your position, you should use another name. just, that was it. And so Jeff went back and changed it to Heart Song, I think. And it was exactly the same. And he kept his own position and just the same way, but he changed the name because Swami had asked him to. But after he left... Swami turned to me. I mean, far from being even slightly annoyed or anything like that. There was all this other reaction. How presumptuous, how dare he, all this. Swami just turned and he said, anybody with a little spunk is just going to go ahead and do things. They're not going to sit and wait for instructions from the mother center. (laughs) just like that. (laughs) Meaning, anybody with a little spunk, that's what we want. We don't want people who are just going to wait to be told what to do. We want people who push the limits and Make it happen. And uh, that's really important for all of us as devotees. It's, I mean, there's one model of spiritual life where you're just passive all the time. But Swami never encouraged that, ever. It was always, he was always hoping to rein people in rather than have to, have to try to wake them up. And it just it, it was not the model. And, and that's a Kali Yuga model that people hold. But a lot of that model is this great fear of making mistakes. And if you if you have this terrible fear of making mistakes, you can never do anything. I mean, you can never be creative because creative, by definition, is you're going places where it's not been done before. If it's already been done, you might really want to think about something that hasn't been done or hasn't been done by you in this way, in this moment. And if you, if you always follow the path of certainty, um, it's not good for us. It's not good for us as individuals because we all have this unique... Spark. And it doesn't, as Swamiji said, it doesn't have to look different, but it has to be original, which is it has to come out of our point of origin. And even if it ends up looking like what others, what may have happened before, it won't feel that way. It'll feel original because it'll be really authentic. But you can't simultaneously do that and be anxious about somebody being displeased. And you shouldn't flaunt wise advice when it's given, but you also just need your space. I remember this woman who was at Ananda, who was very, very dynamic and very good in her own way. And um, Swamiji sort of created this little department for her to run. And someone said, well, wouldn't it be better if that were you know, under the auspices of thus and so? And said Swami said, perhaps, except she needs her own thing. She just needs to be able to have her own enterprise and run it in her way. And it was just much more important to Swami to give that woman the freedom than coordinating everything. Once you start coordinating everything, then then there's some group that decides how it's going to be coordinated. And it's very important for the health of any organization to keep those two parts in balance. And even with Ananda, Swamiji often said he would rather a new group of people made exactly the same mistakes every five years <laughs> than to make rules that would prevent them from ever making those mistakes again. See, that's how... That's how people operate. This happened. We can't ever let it happen again, so we'll make all these rules to make sure it won't happen again. And then the next people come and all they know is that there are all these rules and they, they have to follow all these rules and they never get a chance to sort of see if it'll work. And it's a, it's in the end much more efficient because you end up having people with dynamic will and you set up a situation in which people are... Able to be creative. Otherwise, you you get two people being creative twenty five years ago, and everybody just replicates it for ever after that. It's um, it's vitally important, and that I mean that's not just sort of sitting there and knowing it's going to fail, and then wisely saying, "Well, go out and crash and burn, my son." It's really just allowing people, you know, be, listening to people's potential and see what happens. Sometimes I I sort of feel like I need to that there may be a history that may be relevant. And I, I try to have that balance point between talking about what Swamiji may have said or what, what good thoughts have been applied, but always wanting to say the past is not the present and is not necessarily an indication of the future. You know, it's just this was the thinking that went into it this far, and then what can you add to that? And that's, the, that's how we have to all work with this. As time goes by, I mean, nothing lasts forever, but we should try to make it last as long as it can and sort of not kill it off by our own <laughs> negligence right at the start. And times change so fast. That's the other part of things. What was true yesterday just isn't true today. Just uh, every, uh, it, It's so fascinating to me to have lived long enough to have a, a whole generation of people become adults, two generations of people become adults in my own lifespan, myself and groups behind me. And realize how completely different the upbringing is. You know, the, just start with the digital reality. But just, it's so, what you're born to and what, you're, what you grow up in molds you so completely, so much, that just, one has to be very careful as time passes to notice. <laughs> and, and, and not just drop out and And keep repeating the pattern that's going on over here. You know, I still don't have, I still don't carry a phone, but I am right on the edge of needing to. I'm just right on the edge. I I almost, I'm getting close to the point where I can't function anymore without it. But I haven't quite crossed over, so I don't bother. (laughs) It's not, I just don't need it, so I don't carry it. But almost, the world is becoming so, you know, text me, give me this, open your phone, then... I, it won't, I can't last much longer. But there you have it. I'm working on it. It's not, I just don't want to. Just, Swamiji never learned a lot of things and I sort of feel I can walk in his footsteps. But he had more helpers than I have. <laughs> okay. So, we are... In... <laughs> but most of the time when I'm anywhere, most of the time when I'm anywhere I, where I need one, I'm with someone who has it. So that's why I said I'm right on the cusp. I'm not not functioning, I'm just depending on others, which is community, that's not so bad. This is, I'm thinking about it now. I don't even like to carry a purse, what to speak of a phone. Okay. Number 222. The master spent, oh this is a very, the master spent many hours reminiscing with me at his desert retreat in May of 1950 you know, Swami Swamiji had all these experiences with Swami when no one, with Master when no one else was watching, and and Master, I'm sure, took him alone, so that he could implant in him a certain kind of consciousness that would have been interfered with if other people had been present. I'm sure Swamiji's own receptivity would be open. And just from watching Swamiji work, I know that other everybody's consciousness influences. And also, of course, Master sort of had this, I almost call it secret plan for Swami, but sort of he cultivated him in a certain way that just didn't relate to other people. So later, those who weren't present dispute things that happened. So Master spent many hours reminiscing with me, See, Master's like filling him in on the life that he missed, because he he arranged for Swamiji to be born late, to come late, but so he missed. I mean, Swami missed most of Master's life. It's it's really interesting when you think about it. it. You know, you never know it, because Master spent hours with me in the desert reminiscing. Master filled him in on the years that he missed and gave him the relevant information that he needed. But also, just like, you know, the not all the women, because Marina Lini Mata is only five years younger than Swami, and she was 13 when she came. I mean, she wasn't 20 by the time Master died. But Tara Mata, Durga Mata, Ananda Mata, uh, they were all there for many, many years before Swami was, and they just they just lived through a whole other reality of his and when you think of it from their point of view, you can sort of see how confusing it was. Swami's 22, he just walks in in the last three years of Master's life. He's just, he'd never been there. He hadn't been through any of it. And he's just this young guy and he just comes in like this. And of course, he was a shining star. And Master took him very close, very quickly. But still, they had seen so many people come and go. And Master talks about this later. And, I mean, Swami talks about this in You know, and then a couple of more of these entries. So many people came and went, they didn't have any belief in him particularly. And from their point of view, even 12 years or 14 years later, when Swami, from their point of view, went out of tune and went away, that was just a cycle they'd watched over and over. What uh, she said was that Master was so intently getting across to Swami everything he ever wanted anyone to know. He told Swami early that he was going to have to write about Master's life. And, you, and it was understood between them that Swami was going to write about him. So Master was always giving him information with the thought, with the explicit thought that you need to take note of this because you're going to use this later. So yes, all of that was taking place. There was, what was the other point that I had there? Um, just a second about them not seeing him Pardon me and he wouldn't have had that relationship with anybody else not even No, he wouldn't. Or, or yeah, or anybody else because he knew what Swami was going to do. I know what I was going to say. I put this in my book about Swami his his um his cousin Bette, um who was Swami's close friend when they were in college years and uh, his cousin met Master he introduced Bet to Master. And uh, Swami thought very highly of her and said to Master, she would make a good yogi, wouldn't she? And he said, yes, she would. Her, she, her life took a completely different direction. But she told me, these were her words, Swamiji was clearly the apple of his eye. And I said, um, why do you say that? I interviewed her. Why do, you, why do you say that? Oh, she said it was just obvious. Just like that. Then I went to Swamiji and was telling him about... Because I talked to his, a number of his relatives when I was writing that book the first time because I thought I was going to write it differently. And I said, "Bet said that. And I, I said, I asked her, how did, you, how did you perceive it? And she said, it was just self-evident. And, that, and then I said again, that you were the apple of Master's eye. And then Swami very quietly said, I was... It was, it was very interesting, just modestly and quietly, but he said, yes, I was. Because you could also see, and it comes also in this later reading when he talks about organizing the monks, that he just, Master knew exactly who he had in him and, and knew what, well, look what Swami's done for the work. And again, Swami was his son in the life, both when he was Ferdinand and both when he was William, and in both incarnations played this amazingly important role and just carrying it on, and then here he is again. So there was no question. Master knew exactly what he had, what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, and was Im- immensely pleased because it gave Master so much security in terms of um, the enduring reality of what he was doing. So you can see how even, how Bet could pick all that up when she was there. Just feel it and see it. Bet was a very... Um, sensitive person. She had, she had the capacity to perceive. That's why they were such good friends. The other woman I talked to was just a high, a high school friend of both his brother Bob and of, of Don, of Kriyananda. Um, and she said, oh, with Bob we talk about who was dating who and what music was popular and so on. But with Don we only ever talk serious philosophy. <laughs> you never ever talk trivial things with him. <laughs> These are when they were high school boys. <laughs> It was really fun. Okay. So, the master spent many hours reminiscing with me in his desert retreat in May of 1950. Once, master told me, I visited a saint who lived in a jungle. This sadhu, holy man, wore no clothes. I was touched to see that his genitals were the size of a baby's. Such was his purity that his sexual organs had not even matured. Isn't that amazing? He, did, he, he grew to man's size, but he didn't... He just... The hormones never came in. The body is so different than we think it is, isn't it? Amazing. He asked... I just love that phrase. His purity was such. He was so pure that there was just no, no need for gender. Huh. I, people have asked Swamiji, why are all the masters men? One of Swami's answers, oh, men just have more freedom. He said, they can go more places and do more things by themselves as a rule than women can. So it's simply more convenient for a master to be a man. It's also, generally speaking, it's a masculine job. I mean, masculine energy, whether male or female. He asked me, what if you were going to sit down and eat, and just then a stranger came who hadn't had anything to eat, what would you do? I would give him my meal, I replied, master speaking. And what if, the sadhu continued... After feeding him and preparing another meal for yourself, another person came who also hadn't eaten. What would you do then? I would give him, I would give him too what I was about to eat. And what if this happened a third time? What would you do then? I would give him half my food and eat the other half myself. (laughs) (laughs) Off with you, the sadhu cried. You are no renunciate. What he meant by that dismissive expression was simply for shame. And then Swami writes, "It was. It's just this funny stories, isn't it? Masters visiting this naked sadhu out in the jungle, and the sadhu quizzes him and criticizes him. Strange. And also, just imagine being a naked sadhu. Imagine being so absolutely unconscious of your body that you don't even put clothes on it. There's that story about the woman sadhu who was also wore no clothes, and the." villagers were scandalized and she just said, well, there are no men about, why should I dress? Meaning, no one who is, isn't of God realization. Well, that's just because he, he, he has been so hot in Chennai for so much of his childhood. He's just, he's, he's still wearing it off. That is not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but then when a holy man was coming, that woman saint said, oh, please give me something to wear because a man is coming. It's unseemly that I should be unclothed, but think of what what the mind what the mental state would be one that your hormones never come in and you never go to sexual maturity, or that you just are so indifferent i would in, you don 't see it much, but in the streets of Delhi there was I saw this man, this naked Sadhu walking down the street, surrounded by his devotees it it 's startling, but he was just wandering along with no clothes on and there were devotees with him. It seemed like he had some kind of an orange something on somewhere, but maybe he had nothing on at all. Just, you know, strolling down the street. Like, what a d- different world. I mean, what a different way to, to be. Um, then Swami writes, It was impressive to me that the Master, in telling me this story, had made not the slightest attempt to justify his hypothetical third decision, nor to answer the sadhu's scolding with a perfectly reasonable justification. Often I found, where only he was concerned, he would graciously leave to others the last word. He's, Swami's mentioned that many times, How, and you know, it's it's he puts that in sadhu beware to just let others have the last word. It's an interesting exercise that is that is more deliberate sometimes than you than you may, at least at least for me, because I always like to finish the explanation. But just to realize that somebody has spoken and there's a whole other way it could be turned and to just let it be. Just let it be and just let whatever somebody else has done, just let it stand. What difference does it make? Where only he is concerned. That's what um, Swami makes the point. If there were others around and teaching had to be corrected, that's something quite different. Because then there's a responsibility uh, to, to make sure that people know if it's important. But where only he was concerned, he had nothing to defend. That's it. Once again, it's just that complete, he had nothing to defend. So what if I'm wrong? So what if people think I'm wrong? And a lot of times you have to ask yourself that question, what's at stake here? Is there really anything at stake here? Except just my habit of wanting to have the last word. <laughs> and the Swami, in sadhu beware, says things like, you know when people misunderstand you, just let them misunderstand. Don't explain, don't fix it, just leave it. It all sounds good on paper, but it's really quite an adventure when you actually just let it go. I do feel I owe it to him, however, as my guru, to add that every answer he gave that sadhu seems to me to have been exactly correct, both morally and spiritually. Indeed, the sadhu might have extended his hypothetical question to the point where the master was dying from hunger, while continuing to feed others. By contrast, what the Master always demonstrated, and this is so lovely, was common sense. And that's what, that's, that was a characteristic also. That's a characteristic of our path. It's commonsensical. And Swami never takes any theory beyond the point of common sense. I remember the early years of Ananda, when it, was, when it was really cold there, too. Different times, people tried to live without heat. People tried to go through the winter without shoes. People stopped combing their hair. You know, just various different things. And some of it always just sort of, you know, just kind of wait for it to become too cold or too uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just like, we don't need to be like this. There's just no need to be like this. Be practical in your idealism. Be practical in your idealism, exactly. And I'd also use a modicum of common sense. One of the experiments with no heat ended in pneumonia and that was um, a helpful, salutary lesson for everyone. <laughs> what is the point? That sadhu's counsel might be taken as spiritually um, valid only in the case of someone who is uh, directing his every effort toward feeding others. Uh, that's just an interesting touch. If it was your primary objective to give food to others, then, then the whole context is different because then you have to orient everything toward feeding other people. And there you have the common sense, sense, exactly. (laughs) Otherwise, the council contradicted the principle of sensible moderation. The master's solution, surely, even from the loftiest spiritual point of view, was not only sensible, but right. I was impressed, however, that he made no effort to justify himself, even to me. His silent acceptance of that man's rebuke was an inspiring teaching in itself. Swami always said that one of the things that attracted him so much in autobiography was Master's humility. He just is, and he spoke about it so many times. Yeah, I was saying Swamiji often talked about himself uh, in terms of having no personal motives. And the Master had no personal motive. He had just absolutely nothing to defend. I, I love trying to imagine what it would be like to have erased all those vrittis that make you do that and be so uh, uh, completely at one with the universe that no matter what comes through, it just doesn't make any difference. It all looks the same, unless, unless you have a responsibility. But to respond only in terms of responsibility and not in terms of self-protection. So as saying, Swami has no personal motive. He just did what was needed to be done, which often was quite assertive. And Master was certainly assertive when the situation required it. It wasn't like there was... uh, He he wasn't (laughs) goody-goody. But he was appropriate. So, any comments or questions with that? It's an interesting story. It's also just a strange story. How many strange experiences did Master have that he never told us about? This book called The Ohlone Way about... The uh, early Indians that lived in this uh-huh. area. And one of the things I noticed that was so interesting is that um, they were talking about how the children and were uh, taught and everybody that they followed exactly what was done in the past and not th- just the opposite of what you were talking about um, being more expressive and um, you know being out there. But sort of like they were staying in the background. And I, it kind of makes me think like, well, maybe that was part of why their time was, had come to not be around Well, the anymore. trouble with everything we know about American Indians, Native Americans, is that we only knew them in the last gasp of their civilization. You know, our, our arrival on, in this country was the end of their culture, and they themselves knew about the time when the people were numerous and they had a golden age. So whatever's left of what they say it's not like their culture was destroyed that there were no way there's nothing to know about it but who knows what it was when it was flowering because what we always saw was the end of it and you know it's also it's a very tribal culture and it's a different way to live um, it's not we're not talking about the path of self-realization we're talking about a, a social cultural tribal life which was very secure and very um, you know, there was just, I mean, not necessarily, depends on how many enemies there were, but it, it just had its own reality. It doesn't, it just is what it is. It, it doesn't relate to anything particularly, it's just its own story. And there's no reason why they had to be particularly enlightened. I think they varied a lot. But it was a very, at different times it was relatively stable, but a lot of what happened in the Native Americans that we knew about, there was a lot of war. And a certain amount of physical, all kinds of things that are not, um, that, that, that are a little, uh, make you shudder a little bit. And other of the tribes were just glorious in the way they related. Hard to know. You just everything, everything in history is always confused. You have to have been there. <laughs> But, you know, a culture in which everybody behaves like everybody else, in which you follow the rules, it's very stable. And you, 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 you follow your father's profession, and the people who are born there want to follow their father's profession. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's a certain vibration that's held. And um, much can be learned. Much positive can be learned. And then other, in other ways, they're limited. It's just what it is. You know our intensely individualized way of life can be lonely um and intensely communal or tribal can be stifling, so you just some good, some bad all right, number two, two, three. My older brother Ananta the master said when he saw my determination to go to the Himalayas and dedicate myself to a life of solitary meditation said to me your life will become like dry leaves of use to no one. You may be right brother I replied with a smile but dry leaves don't forget make very good manure. (laughs) Whenever Ananta went after him he always just turned it. He just didn't His brother had a great deal of authority and was apparently quite fierce. But the father was stern. You know, Ananto could be harsh, but, you know, Sri Yukteswar was really drastic or however he phrased it. But uh, perhaps you're right. That's that wonderful phrase. Is that from Sri Yukteswar? Perhaps you're right. I love that. That and the other one I said on Sunday, I understand why you feel that way. That's also a good one, but perhaps you're right is really a masterpiece. It's a, it's, it's just so good to remember because perhaps somebody is right. If you, if you just can sort of hear what other people say and when they're trying to push you in a certain direction, well, perhaps you're right. We'll see. You just kind of let it pass. There's no argument and there's no concession. It's just, it's really a brilliant, absolutely brilliant. 224. Also, just look at Ananta's aversion. Your life will be like dry leaves if you don't Make money and have a family and get married. There'll be no satisfaction for you. What will your life matter? And that is how people perceive it. It's what's day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. It's so extreme between the two worlds. And it, it, we, we, try to, we try to walk both worlds, but it's, sooner or later it's just the battle to the death. And it's very hard to anticipate that. But it it does come to it. Number two two four. It may not be easy for people outside of monasteries, now we're on this very, very long one. It may not be easy for people outside of monasteries to understand and sympathize with the master's uncompromising attitude on certain issues. I mean I'm just supposed to start there for a moment. That was just what I was saying. You know Swamiji says in the path, few people understood how drastic was the revolution that Master was calling us to. And we hear the words, and there's no way, there's no way we can understand it more than we can understand it. That's how I sort of feel from all these years on the path. You understand it to the point that your imagination and your experience can take you. But then there's a point beyond which you just don't don't know what it feels like. And when life you know, kind of goes along in a certain way and we're doing our best and you know, just sort of feel and then God hears your deeper prayer and he pushes you a little farther. It's where Sister Gyanamata writes how, how um, she didn't understand why everything had to be taken away from her and her phrase was even those things that were mine by right and harmed no one. That was her phrase, even that. Because anything that she identified with, I mean, this is, I suppose, how you say it, anything that you call yourself, you have to relinquish. And if you don't know how to abandon it on your own, then God will help you. And it does seem extremely drastic. That's why Swami published this book differently. He published The Path without putting everything in there. You know, because he wanted to to introduce it. As a monk himself, he naturally hoped to establish a monastic way of life at his headquarters at Washington. Few of those who came to him, however, were ready for that way of life. He once said to me, in the early days, many of those who came, especially the men, saw no reason why they shouldn't go out dancing whenever they felt like it. (laughs) You know, you have this tidy picture of the master arrives and all of his chosen ones come. And you, and you do have that story given to you by those who stayed. So you have the stories of Durga Mata and the others that I mentioned, Ananda Mata, Daya Mata, who did come with the right attitude, who understood what was asked of them, who embraced it. But then there was this circle that was just moved around all the time. And the men were there. And Master, Swamiji said that Master asserted his state of consciousness much more strongly in the last years of his life that what swami witnessed was not the way master put himself forward and i can say that to a certain extent from having watched swami through the early years and to later i was talking on sunday about the early 80s and how you know he just got tired of the way we were relating to him but there was so much discussion in those early years of who swami was and how we were supposed to relate to him and does he really know and you know and he wouldn't he, would, he absolutely refused, in fact, he repudiated any position, any claim to a position. And yet, at the same time, continued to radiate so much magnetism that many, many people um, understood that that we should defer to him and that we should attune to him. But he never would assert that. So he was just there with his circumstances, with his discipleship to master with his years of experience. But nonetheless, um, there was no context for knowing who he was. So, we were having the men who were coming there going out dancing, right? What I was starting to say is, you know, they would, you can imagine, I mean, this was uh, long before the this all this became really popular, but these were original thinking men who were interested in this teaching. They're probably strong-willed themselves. They also um, Part of the teaching is you you, know, you follow your own path, you do your own way, and they come and they're living at Mount Washington and they're intrigued by Yogananda. But a lot of them, Autobiography of a Yogi wasn't published until 1946. So just, you know, they were just, it was they were sort of all in it together and they would just do what they felt to do. And a lot of people define spirituality as doing that which feels good, as opposed to being denied everything because you'll go to hell. So it's complicated. And then also, Swami speaks at great length in other places about how, you know, that it was harder, much harder for men to discipline themselves to the authority of another man. And it was easier, women just by nature tend to be supportive and uh, used to following the male lead. And men are more competitive by nature and used to being independent. So it was harder for men to be disciples, just in general. And especially so at this time. So the men would stay and they would go out dancing and Master would say, perhaps this isn't a good idea. (laughs) And that was the time of the Charleston, some of it, yes. (laughs) Well, it got worse. The Charleston was easier. Okay. Then Swami says, perhaps it was on beholding my eagerness after he'd placed me in charge of the monks to develop a more monastic way of life that he decided it was time they were organized properly. As far as I know, little or nothing had been done before that to systematize things. Certainly any seeds that had been planted had not survived. I didn't like telling others what to do, but I realized also that if I didn't take seriously the responsibility the Master had given me, and if our way of life continued to be treated as casually as it had been, we would never have a truly monastic way of life. And men would keep leaving any the thought arose in their minds. There's just so many. There's so much that Swami has here. You know, again, when I hear about how Master worked and did things, I think about how Swami worked and did things. You know, Swami never decided in advance that in 1979 we will do this. He always had to work with the energy of people who were there, um, Swamiji so has talked about leadership. It's, it's Leadership is a particular creative art. And the medium that you're using is other people's energy. It's a, it's a very interesting way to think about it because to, you can do everything yourself, which some people who are ostensibly in charge of organizations actually do everything themselves. And other people can go along with them. But that's a different... That's being a creative artist yourself a little bit more. But a good leader forming an organization works with other people's energy. And if there's no no one else there to make it happen, it simply can't happen. Over many, many, many years of Ananda, Swamiji said that it's not a question of what I think would like to happen. It's whether or not there are people who can carry it through. And many, many times over the years, he just said you know the the limit of ananda is the limit of capable leaders that's all and it doesn't matter how many plans we have if we don't have capable leaders to carry out those plans there's just no way and and that was you know we sort of would hit the the limits of possibility so here's master it it wasn't really necessarily that he was content with having the monastery run the way it would. It, it did but who who was going to make it happen he certainly wasn't going to be with those monks every day and enforce the rules. He had so many other things to do. So when, when he saw that Swami took it seriously, I mean, there were so many parts of that. And Swami himself saying, Master had given me this responsibility and this was also Swami's opportunity. This is what my guru asked me to do. So I have to, this is not a casual request. I have to really respond to this and make it happen. So when Master saw that Swami was actually going to do it and was capable of doing it, then all of a sudden he could turn his mind to it. Prior to that, there would be no point in it. I mean, many times over the years in the position of leadership I've been in, people will come and tell me that this ought to happen or that ought to happen, and yeah, I completely agree with you, but there's just never been anyone to do it, so what can we say? It's it's That's where it stops. Um, we've developed this marvelous school But we don't really have a youth education program in our church. We don't even have a Sunday school. After all these years, we still don't have a Sunday school. We've had one periodically, but we don't really have youth education. Everybody who's really good with kids ends up getting drawn into our school, and there's just never been anybody left in all these years, 30-some years. It's always been a high priority to have a youth minister, and we've never had one. When Karuna was here... The very beginning, he had a, a passion for children, and when Kabir was here, both of them created more. But it was more like they were in another position and they also had a, a, an inclination that way. But you would think, but it just, it's just never come. So desirable as it is, you just can't do it. So you can see Master there wishing for some monk who would take this over, but he can't do anything until Swami's there. So it's also about leadership. And about just being realistic. You just go where the energy is and you can't force it. You can't make people do something. And also on the other side of it, as uh, Swami's often put it, if the job, even if it's a very important job, but it's not spiritually beneficial for anybody to do it, then we don't do it. It has to, not, they not only have to be capable, it has to be good for them. So even though Swami had to sacrifice, as he describes here, it was obviously good for him to do that, or else Master would not have let him. He would have taken him out of it. There was that, um, just that little incident where somebody who was critical to some work Master was doing, maybe it was building the Encinitas Towers or something like that in time for the opening, or I don't know what it was, Lake Shrine, I mean. And this man didn't show up for work. And the, and the next day Master said, where were you? We, were, we needed you. He said, oh, I, I needed to spend the day meditating. Oh, why didn't you say so? Master said, just like that, fine. Not a problem. Just meditate. That's all that really matters. So, um, Swamiji also, he said, if, if we didn't develop a, a this way of life, men would keep leaving anytime the thought arose. Swamiji had a tremendous, uh, it hurt him very deeply. Because he, he, once he was in charge of the monks, he would accept them. He was the one who would talk to them and bring them in, and he would see these men come with um, this zeal for uh, the spiritual life and the zeal for the renunciates' life and the zeal to be a disciple. And then the circumstances were so unsupportive that they they would lose that they would lose the capacity to follow it. And Swamiji felt it very keenly inside himself. You know, he he, he really had a deep longing. To make it work for them, because he he, he imagined how long, how many lifetimes it had taken them to get to that point, and then to have them lose it. And it wasn't merely the loss of the monastic life, but it was it was loss of their discipleship, loss of their connection to master. Because it wasn't like, it wasn't like there was another alternative. If they weren't devoted in that way, there was no other place for them. Among the wonderful aspects of Anandes that. You have different ways of being part of it, and merely to shift your lifestyle in this particular way doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost your vocation. Where um, in, At that time, because of the way it was set up, it's, uh, much, certainly subsequently that, it's been very difficult. Swami says, the only rules in existence when I came there were two in number, no mixing of the sexes and silence at mealtimes, and as much as possible during any gatherings. These rules were posted in the master's handwriting. Isn't that all interesting? Just master wrote out a hand note but were honored mostly in the breach. (laughs) Silence at mealtimes was itself given the silence treatment. (laughs) Um, At at table, everyone chatted away freely. The master, of course, could not be there to enforce the rule. It seemed obvious to me that if we were ever to have a true monastery. Someone would have to sacrifice some of his own convenience. So there it begins. You know, a leader is a person who's willing to take responsibility. I've had. I remember once someone was it was actually working the sound system, and uh, some really awful things happened to my recordings, and I was quite impatient. And uh, the man who was ostensibly in charge told me that, well, you know. The volunteers were just not doing it right. And I just looked at him and I said, well, that is your responsibility. <laughs> that's not an explanation. And, but that's it. If you're responsible, it's not, you don't just say, oh, well, oh, well, it didn't work. I mean, oh, well, it didn't work. But the next step is, okay, what do we do about it? And that's, you just, you, you have to drive like that. That's how you have to be. I was remembering, it's, it's not that important, but when we put that spiritual eye up there, And we just couldn't get it right. You know, Gary and I were just after it day after day because it just had to be gotten right until we got the black out of the thing, got it to shine the right way, and got the thing set up in the right direction. It just goes on endlessly. It never stops. But it does never stop. You just have to keep moving. And I think it was Henry Ford who said, it's just like more valuable than gold is a man who will take responsibility. And not explain to you that well, it didn't work. <laughs> well, of course, it didn't work. That's the whole point. That's what we have to do next. I mean, and then sometimes everybody just has to laugh and say it wasn't meant to be. But there's this this uh, ambition that you have to have, and it's it's the ambition to overcome tamoguna is what it really is. But it manifests as okay, it's not right, and then let's just keep going. And how are we going to solve it? And it's totally fun. That's the fun of it, because that's the creative part. The secret of prosperity, Swamiji said, is just creativity. You just, every time it fails, you just make up a new one. And you just keep going until you found the solution. That's what Swami did with Ananda, just time after time after time. And so many things over the years, they just, it would, he would try it and it didn't work, he would try it and it didn't work, and it failed and failed and it's it's important really to know in the history of Ananda that quite a few of the things we tried didn't work. I mean we had ocean song for a long time and that didn't work and San Francisco house closed eventually and the San Francisco they opened a center and closed it, they opened a store and closed it, Sacramento was opened things and closed them. It's just not everything works. But you just sail out there, everybody learns a lot, hopefully has a good time. And then you can, and you never give up. You just take that responsibility. So there was Swami. Somebody would have to give up their own inconvenience, their own convenience. For example, Swami said, I decided I'd no longer set food aside at lunchtime and go off to meditate, eating afterwards. Someone had to sit there throughout the meal um, to remind everyone that there was a rule that someone obviously had to be me. He even talks in another context about how he started sleeping in the dormitory. From having a private room of his own, which he always had, he moved in with the men and slept with 15 men in a room. Swami, in that context, did say he did keep his room, so he had a little place to go to. But he said, just to keep order. Imagine what the situation must be like, just to keep order. You know, and the monks did not have very... They lived in the basement of Mount Washington. They didn't have really very pleasant quarters. But there it was, you know. I'm going to make this a success, or I'm going to do it. But you know, it's not. It doesn't feel like sacrifice, because I was part of the early years of Ananda, when some people thought it was very rigorous. It wasn't rigorous at all. It was a total lark, just start to finish. Every part of it was just so much fun, and we were just going to make it work. We just, we just had to do what we had to do. I missed the first winter, but I missed the first two winters, but. Um, I was just listening to people talk about it. It came fall of 1969 and it was getting cold and they literally just had a meeting and they talked about teepees. And then they went out as a community, as a group, and they cut down the right trees and they skinned the poles and uh, they ordered the canvas and some of the women who knew how to sew sewed the canvas skins and just they just put up teepees. Just like, hey, let's try this. And it worked, more or less. People live through it. But just, why not? Let's just see if we can make it work. Let's figure out a way. That was always my picture when we were being litigated against and uh, we thought we might lose everything. And there was no logic to how... It was no logic to how we would end up without our community since we don't even own it. But let's just say that we were bankrupt and just everything was done. And I always had this picture and because of my Jewish heritage... It was always, we, we always suddenly reverted back to Eastern Europe in the 1930s, always. And the men would have fedoras on, and the women would have, you know, short skirts, and we'd all be carrying leather valises, you know, just, of course, that wouldn't be what it would look like, but that's how it always looked in my mind. And somehow the whole crowd of us would be standing right there in front of the place on Monroe Drive, and we'd all be standing there dressed like the 1930s, <laughs> looking at each other, and we'd all sort of say, okay, what next? And then I just always had this picture of just kind of laughing and talking, just walking down the road. Just what next? I mean, it it might be worse than that, but there we are. When I, You know, the the man who litigated against us, who was so ghastly, had the same name. I, I, I like never to say his name, but he had the same name as the first national security director that was appointed by the president in 2017 here. And so I'm alone in my car, and I hear this name, this, it, which is a very common Irish name mentioned, that this man is now the national security whatever for the president. And I thought it was the same man, this man who, who really was out to get Ananda and did not succeed in destroying us. And, and I thought to myself, it could be, because they would find each other. You know, they would find each other. And so I'm alone in my car and I hear this Irish name and I think it's this guy who's really been out to get us and is really, from my point of view, not an honorable man. And and I turned off the radio and there was nothing I could do because I was driving and I don't have a smartphone so I couldn't look it up. And so I'm driving along and I'm thinking, wow, we could have someone in a position of great power nationally who knows where we are and has a vendetta against us. And it, it, was, it was a real interesting moment because I thought it probably wasn't true, but I also thought it could be true. And I just thought, wow, how quickly things could turn in such a case. I mean, I've already been through, we've already been through all those years of litigation, and I know that if you have power, it doesn't always come out fair. And I just thought, wow. And then I went to the old, there we were again, you know, just on the front, and I thought the phrase, we could lose everything, and I thought, what would lose everything look like? We would no longer have a building to meet in. We would no longer have a community to live in. We would just lose everything. And I thought, so then we meet in the park in the middle of the night. You know, that's what they did in under communist countries. That's how the churches survived. They would meet in public places. They would sneak into other people's houses. I thought, okay, just find a way. we'll just find a way. We'll do it. I remember when. Uh, I went with Swamiji to Sorrento, Italy in uh, 1982 when he first met Rosanna and, and got to know the group that was called Pecchi at that time which was a charismatic Catholic group that operated in the, in the town of Sorrento. The, the, one of the local priests was part of their group and they they operated in the church but also <clears throat> a bit outside of it. And they were not, they didn't have a lot Um they weren't poor by any means, but they lived in, you know, Europeans tend to live in smaller places and they lived in apartments. And And people, like 30 people, would crowd into these really small places. And you'd just be sitting all over the furniture, all over the floor, all over the beds, in the living room, in the bedroom, just everywhere. Just all crowded together. And the spirit was marvelous. You know, it just, it, there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing missing. And the fact that it was so informal and so... Um, uh, crowded actually enhanced it because there was just so much love and so much devotion everybody would sing and pray and just have their experience I've always had that in my mind you know this building makes so much possible you know we have so much pageantry and so much liturgy and so much we can just so much art we can do so much in here but if we didn't we wouldn't but would we have really lost anything it's it's yeah, it's it's really it's really an important, and it was a great little mental exercise. And by the time I got to a place where I could look it up, of course, it was retired Colonel so and so. It wasn't Attorney so and so, but uh, it was a great moment. And it's 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 good every once in a while to be scared. <laughs> there was an experience once with uh, this was a long time ago. Uh, Swamiji made a suggestion to Jotish that he enter into partnership with a very, in a work project, with a person who was exceedingly difficult. It would have been the last thing that Jyotish ever would have wanted. And when Swamiji made this suggestion, a particular expression went across Jyotish's face before he mastered himself to respond with a good attitude. And later I was teasing him and I told him, I said, I have never seen you look like that And he said, it was caused by the spontaneous stopping of my heart and the draining of all the blood from my head to my feet. (laughs) He said it could never be replicated. (laughs) But those moments are good. You know, that's sort of what it was like in the car. Wow, how quickly life could change. But it's good for us, you know. Okay, moving right along. Until that time, the position of monk in charge never really meant anything. Now, that's also interesting. You see, Master had asked others to take that role. But but what was the difference between them and Swami is that Swami took it seriously and was willing to compromise his own convenience. He stopped meditating at noon, eventually stopped sleeping in his own room, not small sacrifices but the master had asked him and so master tried before nothing happened i mean i myself and swami asked me to do so many so many different things so many different things over the years that i just never could do i mean it's not that i i didn't want to i just i just flailed about simply wasn't able to do them and there you have it so it's not like they don't try. They give you the chance and you don't make it. Because so few men really stuck with Master, presumably most of the monks in charge didn't even last in the monastery, the Master would give you a try, see what would happen, see if you had a chance. The Master himself couldn't give the time to stay with us and help us to develop our way of life. His counselly work and his writings kept him more distant from the daily scene. Swami, this he, he repeats that several times in here, how Master himself couldn't do it. And it's just an important point. Math, the Master has to work through others. I heard Swami talking about how he's built Ananda through others. He says that all the time. I built it through others. I have to work primarily through others. There's only so much that I can do myself. I have to work primarily through others. And he also described that in a certain way when he was not only speaking of himself, but telling us how to behave. He said, but I was—I always w- am with you in consciousness. And then even says elsewhere that he would project thoughts and that if if we could pick them up, which is that they would just come to us as inspirations, then they would really be our own. And he talked about how much more powerful that was than if he gave us instructions. Because if he gave us instructions, then we're trying to do what he suggests. But if we actually receive the idea, we've received it because we're on the wavelength to receive it so we're already more connected to it than just getting it as an instruction and also it's coming from him and that's what the day we dedicated our community in 1989 it was just we, there'd been so much work gone into you know effort determination just the sudden realization when i was literally standing at the microphone he was sitting behind me that he'd just done it all And I can't really quantify that, but it was absolutely real. I just knew that every ounce of that had just come right from him through us. It had come through us, and we we had given ourselves to it, but the origin point had just been him. And that's the subtlety of the discipleship spiritual path. It's always the master's inspiring us, but it becomes ours because when you receive it like that, that means that you're attuned to it. And that's different than obedience. It's very subtle. Part of it is the creativity, the initiative, the attunement that's required. I mean, anybody can tell you what to do. And and many people can do what they're told. But to receive inspiration and then act on it is is what self-realization is about. It's And it's very different. Somebody was asking me about, people often ask me about intuition and how you make decisions and I don't, I don't have any success with what should I do, you know. I just don't get much answer. Uh, but somehow I know what to do. It's not, I just, a lot of times, not always, but I just start down a path and it just opens up. You just sort of know where it is. It's like the, the creative flow, it's, 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 it's not mechanical, It's not, I have a question, what should I do? Okay, I do this. I have another question, what should I do? Okay, I do that. It's just more like you just start moving. And energy just starts moving. And then you go this, and you go this, and there's this. You feel very decisive. That's what the person who was talking to me said. I said, but I I just, I can't say what should I do. She said, but you're very decisive. And I actually stopped to think for a minute. Well, yes, I am. Because you're sort of just moving in the flow of energy... And it's just obvious that's where the energy is going to go. By no means infallibly correct, but there's still that feeling. It's just much more about taking responsibility and uh, being determined. There's got to be a way. I mean, just so much of the time, there's just got to be a way. When we were fixing that star up there, and some of you know because it's so funny. Because what, what was the problem was that the white behind there's a you know dimensions in that star and the white behind the star was too far back so we had to just bring a, something white closer and so first we just used a paper plate but that was felt a little close to us and we were just standing behind the altar up here and I was just Gary was up sort of perched on a ladder and we were just trying these different things and I'm just standing there and I think There's got to be a solution. That was just the feeling. And I turned and there were these styrofoam hats with the red, white, and blue band that the um, barbershop quartet would wear on the 4th of July. And I looked at that thing and I thought, that's perfect. And so what's actually taped behind the star on the altar is a styrofoam hat with a little red band which we left on there. But it was perfect. But it was just like, there has to be an answer. And I mean, and that's really that's your relationship with intuition. There has to be an answer, and I will keep at it until I find that answer. And then you're in an energy flow. Energy has intelligence. It just comes to you. There just had to be an answer. I mean, there we were. We were going to get the darn thing done. I didn't know how. I turned to my right, and I. It was actually it was more. It was more like it was even more interesting than that. It was like I've seen those hats hundreds of times because I've been up there. I was standing there, and I knew that what we needed was there. It was like subconsciously, I knew it was there. And I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite remember where it was. And then I looked over and I saw it. But it was like I already knew it's it's that hat. We'll just try it. Gary and I, and it was also so amusing. (laughs) God is so amusing. Here we are. So we actually talked about, I believe we left the headband on. I think we thought it was more charming to leave the headband on. So that, you know, a hundred years from now when they excavate the church they'll, they'll find the, the icon of the styrofoam hat which will probably last beyond the building. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. but, but you know, God just, he plays with you. And it's, it's that, it, what, what, what brings it to you. And see, here's Swami. He's a young man. Master gives him a job. Have to do it has to be done this way. That's what's, That's how I behaved to the day of his death. Just every day he had to do it. Master's giving me a job. I'll do it. I'll find a way. There's an answer. And that's where his power came from. That's solution consciousness. That's solution consciousness. That's discipleship. That's I'll die trying. Success is this niche come karma. It's just my job. I'll just keep doing it. That's everything that you everything we need on the spiritual path, and that's great fun too. In the end, it's just terrifically fun. All right, great souls. That'll be the end for tonight, and we did. We started at. Um, we started at two twenty, and we're in the middle of. Uh, we're, no, we're in the middle of uh, two twenty four.